Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is Beyond the Big Screen Podcast with your host, Steve Guerra. I would like to welcome a very special guest today, Trevor Rowley. Trevor is has combined his love of education, landscape, architecture, and archaeology to study a variety of topics. Today, we are going to focus in on one of the most fascinating groups of all times, the Normans. And Trevor is also the author of The Normans, A History of Conquest. Can you tell us a little bit about your background? Because I think it's a really fascinating uh, perspective on your background on how you uh, write about the Normans. Right, um, Stephen. Yes, I, well, I was born in Shropshire in the Welsh Marches, uh, an area where the Normans are present in, in today because a, a large number of buildings, uh, churches and castles and so on. Um, and when I went to university, I, wrote, I read geography to begin with, but I moved very rapidly towards history, historical geography, landscape history, and I found myself doing um, archaeology as well. Uh, and all of this I put together within a career in lifelong learning. I, I worked for the uh, continuing education department of Oxford University. That's lifelong learning. And um, there we were very keen on spreading the, the gospel, as it were, of archaeology, of, of uh, landscape history and the Normans. Uh, so uh, I, I had a, an ideal um, background from which to work, education and uh, with people who were interested and also uh, working with groups who we could work in, in the field with as well. Um, I retired and then I continued. Uh, I, I specialised more on the Normans since I retired uh, because I've given my days of digging are over, yeah, although I still do a bit of field work, but actually you know, on my knees, I can't do that. So uh, I write rather than dig. In the very broadest strokes, who are the Norman? Well, um, the Normans are, they start off as Vikings um, and they come down to England to begin with, when, and then uh, into Ireland. But they then move into the Seine Valley in northern France, and they uh, they set up uh, a territory, a principality, or or at least they are set up by the, the incumbent uh, Carolingians, 
who see them both as a, a, a serious enemy because they 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 plunder their way up the up the river Seine, but they also see them as a possibility of blocking off that area, the Seine Valley, from further incursions. So they they grant the Vikings uh, an area of the the Seine Valley on condition that they will stop more of their own coming in. Um, and then, then the subsequent story of this is that they they take over what, what becomes Normandy, uh, but they become they also adopt a large amount of the culture of the existing French Carolinian. That's one of my main questions is how does a Viking Scandinavian become a Nor- a French Norman in such a short amount of time? What were maybe some of the cultural influences and the the pushes, pushing and pulling of culture that made this er, seemingly rapid change in culture for them? That's a very good question. Um, they they come in as looters and raiders. Um, but you can only loot and raid so many times. So they then begin to settle down. Uh, they be, then become, they be, begin to become respectable. Uh, and I think one of the big questions is how many Vikings were there compared to the indigenous French population? And we don't know the answer to that, but, but it was probably only about one in, let's say one in 10, one in eight, uh, quite a small percentage. But they were, the, they were in charge, they were the rulers, and they then saw the advantage of really adopting Carolingian French uh, laws, French uh, um, systems of government, and and of course the, the language, because Viking was not a written language, and if you wanted to run a country, then you needed to have a written script which you could you could correspond uh, and lay out taxes and so on. So they rapidly saw the advantage of becoming French. And so there is a sort of almost concerted effort by the, the ruling Viking classes to become French as quickly as possible, because in doing so, they then had the advantage of being able to intermarry in within French society, the whole of French society, and to be able to communicate with them on equal terms. So I think that that is one of the big motivations that they want to be they want to become respectable because being respectable is it means money means wealth means prestige what were some of the cultural aspects that maybe these norman french hung on to the from their viking era well it's a, that again is a very good question because archaeologically the, the the vikings are very quiet in normandy they're not so quiet in england we know we can pick them up in england but in normandy they're not they're not obvious at all the most obvious evidence for them is in place names there are hundreds of place names which are have a viking element toft uh, lund uh, hog all of these elements are in integrated into uh, Norman names, often with a French uh, suffix, that is, veal, like uh, tote veal uh, is, is an example, where toft is the uh, Viking for a homestead, and veal means just a village. So um, that, that, that's, so that's the, the, their most obvious in the in the place names the language itself dies out quite quickly it doesn't it doesn't it probably survives into the 11th century but not not really much before beyond that it wasn't a great cultural asset 
to be a to be a, a Danish speaker really. It was much better to be a French speaker or a Latin speaker. Um, one or two other elements hang on. Uh, there is, for instance, a slave market in Rouen, right up in the 11th century, and that's a, that's a hangover from the Viking days uh, because they're still dealing in slaves. Um, there's also a political link with the Vikings, which the Normans hang on to until about the same time, about 11, 10, sorry, 10, 10, 10, 20. They, uh, they allow free access to the Seine uh, for, for, Norm, for Viking forces, Viking forces that are on their way south. Um, they, they, they will give them safe harbour. Uh, that stops again about 11, about 10, 10. 1020, when they are very much part of the mainstream of Northwestern European politics. In the grand scheme of things, though, that's a very short amount of time. When did the Normans establish themselves, or when did the Vikings establish themselves in Normandy, and how did that happen? What happens is that, as I say, to begin with, at the end of the ninth century, they're busy looting, raiding, and raping their way up the Seine, uh, particularly hitting monasteries and then going back to uh, to Scandinavia uh, and then beginning to, to, to overwinter. Uh, and then in 9-11, the, the French, uh, the Western French king, a man called Charles the Simple, although it doesn't mean exactly that he was simple, it means he saw things, things in a straightforward way. He, um, he, he, granted them land through a treaty called the Treaty of Saint-Clair-sur-Ept. And this was basically the land around Rouen, which was the ancient capital of the region. And uh, a man called Rollo becomes the Count of Rouen, effectively the first Duke of Normandy, because William, William the Conqueror, is about five generations further on. So it is a, a very short time span. He becomes Christian, or ostensibly becomes Christian, um, and as I say, he takes on this responsibility of looking after the uh, western part of the Frankish Empire uh, in return for the land uh, and, and and the the position. Uh, so I, I'm not sure if that answers your question, really. Yeah, I think that also leads into my next question about. Christianity. How quickly did the uh, the Vikings who became Normans adopt Christianity, and how deeply did they infuse Christianity into their culture? Again, an excellent question, because as you know, the Vikings at this stage were certainly pagan, um, and they 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 made a beeline for for churches, uh, monasteries, because that's where wealth was kept, and they they sacked them all the way down the river. Um, one of the one of the clauses in the Treaty of Saint Clair was that Rollo and his followers should uh, should be converted to Christianity. And there are various there's a lot of myths around this, but the, one of the, one of the stories that I like is that um, they did they did adopt Christianity, but they enjoyed it so much that they often lapsed. They enjoyed the conversion process, but they lapsed and then they were converted again several times. Um, Rolo, the story about Rollo himself on his deathbed, that he, um, uh, that he had a mass said for him, but just to make sure he had a number of human sacrifices as well. Oh, wow. <laughs> so 
I, I think that's apocryphal, but nonetheless, I think it sort of un underlines this uh, this tension between the, between the two. And, and the Christianity in Normandy during the first decades of the Viking takeover is very quiet, very, very quiet. And we don't see churches being resurrected much until the middle of the middle to the latter part of the 10th century. Um, but one of, one of the really interesting things that I find is that the Normans who start off as pagan um, looters and raiders become some of the most enthusiastic uh, Christians in the whole of uh, the Latin West. They, they become really torch holders for pure Latin Christianity um, by the middle of the 11th century. And by the time of the conquest of England, they are actually, um, they, they, are, they use the conquest of England as a sort of a, almost, almost as a crusade. They sell it to the Pope saying, look, these people in England, they really got a backward Christian religion. We'll take the new, the, the real stuff over there and reform this backward uh, Christianity. And, and so the Pope actually endorses the, the invasion of England on the basis that William will, will bring Christianity back, the pure Christianity back to the English. That's a great point that really helps get into the my next question uh, because it's kind of the big thing is the or the one of the biggest things that the Normans did they did many things is the conquest of England how much would have an Anglo-Saxon in the mid 1000s think of the Normans are are they thinking of them as uh, just another version of the Vikings coming in or are they seeing them as a movement of the continent and of the Carolingians and the Franks? Well, I think the average Englishman in 1065 would have known very little about the Norman. It's not true to say there weren't links. There, there were links with the monarchy. Um, a, a Norman, Emma, had been married to two kings of England, um, to Ethelred the Unready and to Canute. Um, so there were, at, at so, sort of aristocratic, monarchical levels, there were links. But I don't think really anybody knew much about Normandy, apart from those people who traded with it on the south coast. So I, I think there would have been a, a great deal of ignorance about, about the Normandy. I, I think it would have come as a, a great surprise when William ends up as King of England uh, to, the, to the vast majority of English people. I don't think they would have even known that he had ambitions to become King of England or that no, there was a story that Edward had Edward the Confessor had promised him the throne. I don't think any of those things would have percolated very far down the, uh, down the social scale. And now, a brief word from our sponsors. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey everyone, I'd like to say something about a new product I've tried called Calatrin. Doctors endorse it, nutritionists recommend it, and customers love it. Calatrin is for healthy weight loss. I have taken Calatrin myself, and I can honestly confirm that I've lost weight, I sleep better, and I have found relief from a joint injury that I sustained in my arm. Calatrin contains collagen, the most abundant protein naturally occurring in the human body, which decreases as we age, and I am reaching of that age where things decrease. Taking Calatrin promotes better sleep, more energy, less joint pain, and best of all, weight loss. Calatrin has an amazing 86% success rate with their 90-day supply, and this week, take advantage of their President Day sale. Buy the 90-day supply and get an extra month free plus free shipping. Ordering is so easy. Just text the word BBS to 30605 and I'll send you a link to this special offer. Text the word BBS to 30605. Give Calatrin a try. I think you'll enjoy it and I'll talk to you next time. The the Normans, they obviously they came in and made huge cultural changes. If were there big changes that archaeologists and uh, experts today can see in the in the material culture between Anglo-Saxon times to Norman times? Was there a big effect on that culture? On the surface, very little. If you dig a a site of the 11th century, you will not find any change in the pottery or, or the majority of artifact. Um, at, a, at a sort of bigger level, there, are, there obviously are. Um, the architecture changes, uh, the Normans introduced castles. Uh, so there are big changes, but not at the sort of basic level. So as I say, for most people at the peasant level, there would not have been a great deal of obvious material change, although there would culturally there would have been very big change. I think that most of the the people listening today are, have a, a lot of familiarity with the Normans in England. But one of the things that I think is not as well known, even if people are aware of it, is the Normans in the Mediterranean and their interactions in southern Italy and the Byzantine Empire. How did a group of Vikings who went to Normandy and then how did they get to the Mediterranean and set up a, an enormous and powerful kingdom there? Yeah, I think you're quite right. Most people associate the Normans with William the Conqueror, 1066 and all that. Um, but there is a completely, uh, there's another totally different story um, about them in the, uh, in the South. Uh, the conquest of England was undertaken by the king, mobilizing the whole of the resources of, of his territory and bringing in allies. Uh, and it was, a, it was a major project led from the top downwards. The activities in the south, in Italy and Sicily in particular, they were much more piecemeal and they happened on a much slower time scale over over decades rather than in one year in 1066 um with 
Normans going on crusade to, to uh, Jerusalem. And they, in order to get to Jerusalem, they used to tr- travel through Italy and take the ship over from Italy to uh, sort of Greece, uh, the Greek area, travel across Greece and down to uh, Turkey and down to uh, Jerusalem. So the, 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 it was the process of, of uh, pilgrimage, which, of which they were very keen. And they went, because of the general circumstances, they went as armed pilgrims in order to, to protect themselves and perhaps even to <clears throat> sort of to, to, to get hold of uh, su- supplies on, on their way. Um, and the south of Italy was a bit of a mess in terms of its politics in the 11th century. There were, there were Latins from, from Rome, there were Byzantines, a lot of Greeks were still were over in there, had, there were Greek territories over there. There were some from the north, Lombards, and there were Muslims, particularly in Sicily, which, which was still under Muslim control at this time, but also in southern Italy, there were enclaves of Muslims, and they were all out there at each other's throats from time to time uh, in, in a series of city-states. They didn't have a, an overall national identity at all. They were, the power lay with the, with the city-states. And what the Normans did, they were, they, they, they were, they were then employed as mercenaries uh, because they were seen as, as being powerful cavalrymen on their horses. And they were then enlisted to help one side or the other. And gradually they, they acquired land and they, they acquired land and they then acquired, they, they acquired dukedoms and count, countdoms down there. And eventually they were able to take over the whole of southern Italy and they were able to take over Sicily. Again, a long process, but they then end up as kings in Sicily. Uh, they are, they are recognised as the rulers of a Christian Sicily and they are given the title king. So you see, they start there as very modest noblemen, very very low-level noblemen from no, no better really than local farmer lords looking for looking at to make uh, to make to make to make a buck and that they did they became very wealthy another question that i had especially from reading your book is that you have vikings who are sea warriors who really make very little use of cavalry and within a, a few short generations, they've almost completely lost the ability to travel by sea. And then they're the most proficient cavalrymen, and they adopt a, an entire cavalry mindset in just such a short amount of time. How did that happen? And how much do we know how that developed? Yeah, well, that's again, again a very, very good point. Um, the basic thing was that once they got hold of the land territory of Normandy, their problems were all land-based all around them. There, 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 were, there was Flanders to the north, there was the sort of rump of France to the east, and there was Brittany, there, there was Anjou. All of these were potential enemies who from time to time would gang up on them. And so they had to use the Carolingian system of warfare in order to uh, to succeed, and so they adapted it adapted to that very quickly. They had no real use 
for a navy after they were there, basically. Um, at that stage, they hadn't got their eyes on England. They really needed to, to protect their own borders. And to do that, they adopted this system of castles and cavalry. And they adopted the, the, um, the Carolingian military system, uh, which relied heavily on on horse-based fighting. One of the things that they did do, and, and what they're extremely good at, was that they recognised a good thing when they saw one. And they, they were able to bring in horses from Spain in particular, uh, where they were also fighting, um, and they were able to bring in uh, horses from the Muslim world, from North Africa, and they were able to train them up. Uh, and they trained them up into fighting as fight, fighting horses. And they had very good horses and they became well known. In fact, I think normally still is known for its stud farm. Um, but that was one of one of the things that they, one of the features about, about the Normans was they were so good at being eclectic by recognising things which were useful to them and adopting them and adapting. Did the Normans carry that on into southern Italy and Sicily when they conquered there? In, in, indeed, yes, they did. They 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 went down as horse-borne men down to southern Italy, and and they used cavalry, which of course again down. Well, there was some Byzantine cavalry down there, but for the most part, they were they, they were on their own. Um, but they also, I mean, adapt, adopt, and amend was more or less the Norman catchphrase, and that's what they did with enormous uh, enormous skill. Uh, what did the Normans adopt and adapt from Muslim culture in Sicily and southern Italy to help themselves? Well, initially in Sicily, they were they 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 were very very cosmopolitan. They used Greeks for medicine. No, sorry, Greeks and and, and Muslims for 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 medicine. Uh, the Latins for law and so on in, in, their, in their courts. But gradually, they became very Northern European, and th- those facets changed. What, what you do see, and you still see today, is the influence of Muslim architecture in the great churches of, of Sicily, Palermo Cathedral, um, Cefalu Cathedral, uh, Monreale. All of these have a very, very large element of Muslim architecture. Uh, and uh, you know, echoes down the ages. Um, one of the other things they they adopt, and, and there is a sort of uh, spillover into England, is that they become very interested in gardens, for instance. Not not gardens for producing produce, but gardens as aesthetic places, uh, which was part of the Muslim philosophy. But because the, the Muslims loved Sicily because there was so much water there and they could use water. Um, and we find that that is something that is brought up into Northern Europe. And we find, for instance, um, perhaps Henry I and Henry II uh, introduce these gardens around their palaces at places like Woodstock. There's a, we know that they also introduce a menagerie of, of animals, wild animals, which are brought in from Europe. And Africa, and this again is a, a Muslim characteristic, it's sort of widening the vision of the world uh, to, to, to show other features, other other unknown elements that are brought all brought together. And the idea of having aesthetic uh, landscapes around a, a castle is not something you normally associate with the Normans, but it is something that they do introduce at a fairly early date, and that's a Muslim 
uh, characteristic. What would have been the links between the Southern Italian, the Mediterranean Normans to the Normandy Normans to the Normans in England? Did they have, what degree of cultural connections did they have? Yeah, uh, there were links. There were certainly um, family links. There would, there would be families in England who had families in, had relatives in France and in southern Italy, and that that included the the, the monarchy. Um, Henry II's sister was married to the King of Sicily, for instance. Um, but there was there were no really strong political links. There were there were between England and Normandy up to twelve oh four, but there were no strong political links with the south. Um, in, in any real terms. Um, although one of the interesting things is that if you take by the second out of the second half of the 12th century, when Thomas Beckett is murdered in Canterbury, he immediately becomes a sort of favorite Norman uh, saint. And, and there, he, you can find him in Monreale within pictures of him within six years of his martyrdom. So that, that, that sort of cultural link is obviously very strong indeed. Kind of the last step of the Normans in their travels is in the Crusades. What impact did the Normans have on the Crusades? Yeah, again, very, very interesting. The Normans uh, participated in the Crusades in, in two different groups. That is the group from Normandy itself. William the Conqueror's son, uh, Duke Robert, took a contingent, uh, which was largely made up of northern French uh, crusaders. Uh, and that was very successful because it, it, um, it, it, it participated in the various sieges, the siege of Antioch, and, the, and in particular, in the siege of Jerusalem. And on the way down, uh, Robert picked himself up a, a wife in southern Italy. Um, but it, in the long term, they didn't stay very long. The southern Italian contingent who were involved were much more influential because they actually set up a crusader state in Antioch. And there are Norman kings or Norman, Norman, Norman princes in Antioch right up until the 13th century. <laughs> they probably didn't bear much relationship to William the Conqueror, but they were still part of that lineage that went through right to the right to 1095 when they 1096 when they established that uh, crusade crusader state so they, they were very active participants uh, and they did have that long-term effect on the politics of, of the region and and um, the, the impact was was very considerable just in on the side England itself did not participate in, in the first crusade so Norman England um, what happened was that William II that's William the Conqueror's son um, paid a mortgage of five thousand pound for Normandy Duke Robert Nor Duke Robert mortgaged Normandy in order that he could raise the army to go on on crusade and that really gave um, the English Normans a very strong hand in moving back into Normandy late, late, later on. Also, the Sicilian Normans didn't participate because they were too close at that stage to the Muslims in uh, Sicily. They were still working very closely with them, um, and so they didn't they didn't participate really on on, on sort of philosophical lines that they, they they wanted to coexist rather than attack, but. 
those two other Norman elements were very strong and, and important indeed. By this time in the uh, 10th century, 11th century, this is really the high watermark of the, the Muslims. Their uh, conquests into southern Italy and into the Mediterranean. And it really seems that about at about this time that they start to recede. Would the Normans have been the the impetus of this, or was it maybe problems that they were having internally? And the Normans were the maybe one of the factors that just kind of started that process. The Normans participated. The Normans really used the unsettled situation in the, in southern Europe. Uh, and the Crusades, they, they were great, as I say, they, they, what they did with great alacrity was to use any situation to their own advantage. And that's what they were doing um, in, in these circumstances. Maybe a couple of last questions. I think one of the, the most important things is, what relevance do the Normans have for us today? Yeah, again, a, a very, very good question. Well, I think in terms of the English-speaking world, the Normans actually are the beginning, as it were, zero, year zero, because um, we, in this country, we, we traced the William I. He's the first sort of English king that's recognised, if not Edward the Confessor. Um, and many families would claim they go back to the Normans. Um, there is, there's a very strong element within... English-speaking culture, which is Norman-based or French-Norman-based uh, language, for instance. We speak a language of which about 20% of the words uh, are French-based or have a French element to them, uh, many, many of which we wouldn't recognise, but that, that is true. And it was the Normans who essentially brought that into the English language. I mean, it's not as simple as that because uh, French continues to be speak, spoken at a courtly level for much longer than the Normans. But nonetheless, it's the Normans who bring it in. Um, the, a number of other elements of culture, architecture, the Romanesque, the reintroduction of, of classical Roman, Romanesque building is enormously important and, and echoes down the ages. And you in America have many buildings which are have a, a heart, the Romanesque of the Normans. Um, the, the, the sort of use of rounded arches and, and so on. Um, uh, as, uh, <clears throat> literature also changes uh, with language uh, and much English literature changes. The, the change to Middle English is propelled by the Normans, the Normans coming in. It, changed, it changes the whole culture. Um, and there are other things I could point out, point out, perhaps less tangible. I think in this country we would say perhaps even the whole concept of hierarchical class, which is often associated with the British, uh, starts with the Normans. Uh, I'm not sure it's absolutely true, but you know I, I think there's a, a concept that that's the, the case. Uh, place names: Montgomery, uh, Richmond, Beauville, Be uh, Beauvoir, uh, and, and so on. All these are place names which uh, we owe to the Normans. So I think there's a very rich element there. A lot of it is below the surface, but it's there none nonetheless. But in terms of, if you, if you want me to ask me what their biggest contribution was in this country, in England, then I would say the architecture and the refashioning of towns like Norwich and Lincoln and Durham, all of which whose heart is Norman Canterbury, 
is Norman in essence, because they, they rechanged it out with their castles and uh, cathedrals and bishops' palaces. They relayed them out and, and they're still there today, the basic, basic plan. So there's a lot of Norman about us. And now, a brief word from our sponsors. The history of the Popes of Rome and Christianity reaches into nearly every aspect of history. In the History of the Papacy podcast, we step over the rope. We dive in to discover more about the people, events, and background that define the influence of the Popes of Rome and Church, not only on the West, but the world. To start listening now, go to ParthenonPodcast.com or search for History of the Papacy on your favorite podcast platform. What do you do when the world around you is falling apart? It's amazing to me how many people are breathing air, they're going about their business and doing the things you're supposed to do. But if you really ask them, they know that on the inside, they are spiritually and emotionally and relationally dead. If we're not careful, all of us can experience that death. When what we need to do, even as the world around us is falling apart, we need to learn how to march when it would be easier to stay where we are and die. Join me each week on the March or Die show as we discuss that and so much more. Norman history is absolutely filled with huge personalities. Who are some of your favorite personalities? Yeah, I do. Um, my own favorite is William the Conqueror's half-brother, a man called Odo, Bishop Odo of Bayer. Uh, he is the man who probably was responsible for commissioning the Bayer Tapestry, this extraordinary um, it's in fact it's an embroidery which is in Bayeux, which shows the story of the conquest of England. Um, he was made bishop by his brother when he was very young, uh, probably as young as 16, uh, because William was putting his own men into, into powerful positions and the church was a powerful, uh, a powerful force. And so uh, he, and he is one of the people who is uh, seen as an architect of the invasion. Uh, on the Bayer Tapestry, he's seen uh, on several occasions giving advice to William, like, for instance, say, why don't you build a new fleet, uh, and, and so on. So he, he, he's, a, he's shown as a quite a big character. After the conquest, he becomes one of the biggest land, he, he becomes the biggest landowner after the king in England, and he's regent when William returns to Normandy. Um, but he, he's never quite satisfied. Um, and so in, I think it's 1082, in 1082, he, he's seen raising a private army in England. And we think he was intending to go to Rome to seize the papal, papacy, that he wanted to become Pope and that he, uh, he was going off to uh, in the Isle of Wight, he, he'd raised this, this navy and army and was about to take off when William found out, arrested him. And for the last four years of William's life, he had his brother incarcerated in Rouen. Um, so he was you know, he's completely out of favour. Um, when William died on William's deathbed, he released him. But he's, he's said to have said, you'll be sorry <laughs> that I've done this. And then within a year or so, Odo had again uh, rebelled against the English king, William II, William Rufus, and he was exiled as a result of that, back to Normandy. He became a, a sort of close associate of Duke Robert, and in 1096, 
he went off on crusade. He actually joined the, joined the crusade largely because he was going to get done in if he'd stayed in Normandy because Henry, Henry I, as he was, was a very powerful character and he'd fallen out completely with Henry by imprisoning him. So you can see he's a man of considerable interest, colour and whatever. And then eventually um, he leaves the crusade in Italy and goes on to Palermo in Sicily, and he dies in Palermo in Sicily in 1026. So he, he is, uh, in many ways, he reflects the energy, the ambition, uh, the sort of almost almost boundless ambition of the Normans. So, I mean, he's not a man I think I would have personally liked to have dinner with many on many occasions. However, he was a fascinating personality. I have to ask one more question about the bio-tapestry. Was that something that was common in that time period? Why would Odo have a gigantic tapestry created instead of maybe having a text written? Well, yeah, um, tapestries were much more common than we think they were because they, most of them have disappeared. Uh, there are little fragments here and there. The Bayer tapestry is, is very interesting because it survives because it was kept in Bayer cathedral in a, in a chest and only shown for two weeks each year and then bundled back into this uh, chest so therefore for, for most of the year it was it was it was protected so that's one of the reasons why it survives as opposed to to the other ones which all sort of you know, erode away um, but the, the point behind the bear tapestry was that I think Odo wanted to show the story of the the conquest in a very graphic graphic light in a way the bayer tapestry underlines the whole enigma of the normans because it was un undoubtedly un undertaken at the direction of the normans the storyline is the normans the norman owned storyline there are elements which might be english subversion but let's forget about that but certainly uh, it was it was woven by english craftspeople, English, probably mainly English women, in England, in Canterbury. So it was a sort of a really joint venture, but um, where, where the Normans are calling the shots, but the actual work is being done uh, by, the, by, by the English. And I, in many respects, that really underlines what happens throughout the whole story. It's probably hard to put a monetary value, but as in terms of a project, how big of a project would that have been? And what kind of resources would that have required? I mean, I imagine it must have been a tremendous. The, the, the Bayer Tapestry. Yes. Sir. Yeah. Um, the Tapestry would have uh, employed dozens of seamstresses, of, of workers, uh, in probably in, in a workshop in in Canterbury Cathedral or, or St. Augustine's more likely in Canterbury uh, and the, the, there would have been a large number of researchers working on the different elements to it. It would have been a very costly, quite right, very, very costly. They would have had to have all the dyes brought in from different parts of Europe to, to, to bring, bring out the right colours. So it would have been a very costly, but the, to the Normans, you see, they, they had won the jackpot. They'd won, they had become rich with their conquest of England. They had, they had a country 10 times as large as their own um, and probably 10 times as rich. 
uh, and they had they were they were top dogs. It was their money, uh, so they 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 weren't worried about that. That was you know, all part of the game. That's why they were able to to you know, they were able to build these great cathedrals. Um, Durham Cathedral, Lincoln Cathedral, uh, Rochester Cathedral, all these grand Romanesque buildings, all these grand Romanesque uh, castles they were able to build because A, the, the, the labour was, I say, dirt cheap. It was very, very cheap, if, if it costing anything. And they had other all the other resources to buy in the goods to, in order to do it. So, so they were able to afford these things because they were the winners. Thank you again for listening to Beyond the Big Screen. A huge thanks goes out to Trevor Rowley, author of The Normans, A History of Conquest. Links to learn more about Trevor Rowley and how to find his books can be found in the show notes. A great way to support Beyond the Big Screen is to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. These reviews do a ton to help me know what you think about the show and, of course, help other people learn about Beyond the Big Screen. Don't keep the big secret to yourself. If you'd like to reach out to me, you can connect with me and other people who want to learn more about the movies they watch and great stories that could very well easily be movies on Facebook and Twitter by searching for A2Z History. You can contact me there or just send a good old-fashioned email to steve at a2zhistorypage.com. Links to all of this and more can be found in the show notes or at my website, a2zhistorypage.com or beyondthebigscreen.com as well. I will see you next time beyond the big screen.